You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. I'm actually a little bit angry at you. Oh, no. <laughs> I would usually what consider... What did I do this time? <laughs> so, like, I would consider myself quite a productive person. Uh, but, you know, I read through your story. You were a captain in the army, a Russian translator, a radio operator in the South Pole. You've got a PhD, an engineer, a professor. You have created one of the most popular online courses. You've published I don't know how many books. Way to make me feel bad, Bob. Oh, but I like to think of it as because, you know, I look at these superstars and I feel like a nothing burger by comparison. <laughs> and and I just you remind myself how happy, happy I am that there are these wonderful people in the universe, certainly far better than I am, who are, you know, who I think are really, I mean, certainly there are people who have made dramatic improvements in my life. Um, I mean, even simple things, we, we take the electrical grid for granted. If you think that um, living back in, um, you know, um, pre, you know, pre or in evolutionary, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 years ago, I have one phrase for you, and that is dental care. Um, you know, I mean, even, you know, having this fantastic dental care, you know, heck, I got a new knee last week. So there's all these brilliant people all around us who are helping make our lives better. And we each try to do our little tiny part, I think, to make improvements. I love that. I love that. And it was interesting to see because when I saw you, and I, and I feel like the word polymath gets thrown around so uh, liberally these days. But I, for you, I think that it is particularly apt. And I think that a lot of people that I've spoken to um, right now, there seems to be, in my own view, a kind of, uh, kind of meaning crisis when people are choosing careers and perhaps this is some sort of breakdown of how people choose careers people thinking that maybe they'll find meaning in their first job and whatnot but I would be really interested to ask you about this because you've experimented a lot with a wide variety of things um, what would be the best career advice and that sort of thing that you would advise to other people I would say, don't just follow your passion, broaden your passion. Because, you know, we're told all the time, follow your passion. Well, passions develop about what we're good at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so it's easy to like fall into this narrow pathway of things you're already good at, because you're not being encouraged to spread your wings and try new avenues. And a lot of times, what one person is really good at, yeah, well, odds are a lot of people are really good at that. So if you're following your passion, you're actually just following the herd, doing what a lot of people like to do. And, you know, it's pretty hard to differentiate yourself in the marketplace when, you know, when you don't have something that is what the marketplace is looking for. I mean, think about it. Follow your passion means be selfish only about what you want. I mean, that, that's not good career <laughs> advice. Um, for me, I followed my passion. I learned Russian. I wanted to learn another language really well. And at one time I spoke it very well. It's now very rusty unless I have a bit to drink. But, um, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, what that did was put me in a career box because I wasn't broadening my passions. I, I mean, knowing Russian along with other skills would have been a great idea. But just focusing on that, uh, you know, uh, so be forewarned. Yes, yeah, interesting, because when my co-host Lewis and I, we started this podcast four years ago, I mean, it wasn't something I was passionate about. 
you know, but I mean, after a hundred episodes and you're speaking to Seth Godin and these other people are now 200 or so interviews in, you know, the passion has certainly come with it. Um, but I would really love to kind of go back to, to kind of your story because you are uh, synonymous really with learning. Um, if you just type in Bob Oakley on YouTube, you'll see uh, a lot of views in, say, for instance, a talk you give on for, for Google and whatnot. You're a very popular course. So how did you get so interested in learning? It's a funny thing. I think it's a little bit like with you. I mean, you start something and you just have no idea that it's going to resonate with you or with other people. Um, I had been focusing, you know, I just had this weird bug in my ear. Um, I've always liked to write. So I wrote a book about working on Soviet trawlers on the Bering Sea. And then it occurred to me you know, my sister, my oldest sister really had some uh, just, shall we say, issues. Um, so I wanted to sort of try to understand how she could be a nice person sometimes and also be very nasty and malevolent on uh, other occasions. So investigating that, I, I was trying to get tenure as an engineering professor and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I have this burning question about why mean people do what they do, not mean people like psychopaths, but, you know, mean people like my sister who just, uh, well, the book that came out of that was called Evil Genes, Why Rome Fell, Hitler Rose, and Ron Failed, and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend. So <laughs> a bit of a tongue-in-cheek and ironic title, but, um, but in, so for six years, I just kind of squirreled myself away. Of course, when you're an engineering professor, you do not mention a word about working on anything like, you know, a popular book about why mean people do what they do that investigates what's going on in psychology and, um, and in neuroscience and so forth. So I just kind of kept it all secret. After I got tenure, it, it kind of <laughs> came out. Um, but what this is, so working on that, and then that led to work on um, pathologies of altruism, which is like, you know, I mean, sure, Hitler had some, uh, shall we say, some horrible, horrible uh, mental issues that sort of manifested on society as a whole, but all Germans weren't bad. So how did they end up following him? So I became interested in the question of, uh, of, you know, thinking you're doing good when it actually is really bad. And, um, and then that led to a talk for the proceeding or for the National Academy of Sciences and uh, to a book from Oxford University Press and a paper in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So I was doing all this stuff about um, sort of the neuroscience of how we think, um, why we react the way we do to others. And all of this is really quite close to how do we learn. And one day, one of my students asked, he found out about my sordid past as a math flunky, because I was terrible at math growing up. Um, you know, I flunked math in elementary, middle, and high school. And uh, he found out about that. And, and I mean, uh, I'm a distinguished professor of engineering now, who knew? Uh, and he said, how did you change your brain? I thought, you know, I have a lot of ideas about that. I, I could, you know, I sent him a little email back and then I thought, oh, I could write a book about this and it would be much more pleasant because education is a lot nicer than, you know, malevolent people who do nasty things to others or people who do, um, things that hurt others while thinking they're doing something good. So I turned to learning and turned to education. And little did I know that actually in the field of education, it's, it's quite helpful to know a lot about pathologies of altruism because there's a lot of really, really good people in education. And there's also a real tendency to want to do good without being willing to look at whether you're actually doing good and whether what you're doing is actually scientifically grounded. 
So that's how I ended up uh, in education. That's really interesting. And you mentioned neuroscience. I imagine this is probably something which we will speak uh, a lot about today. If we look at, uh, say, learning through the lens of neuroscience, what is actually going on in our brain when we learn something new? That is such a great question because it, it really gets to the heart of a very simple answer is, you know, in, in a very great sense, when you learn something new, you are creating connections between neurons in long-term memory in your neocortex. That's learning. But yeah, I mean, there's lots of nuances and lots of if answered buts, but that's the essence of it. And what people sometimes mistake is they, they think that if you're looking at something or if, you're, um, if, you're, if you can go look it up, that you kind of have learned something. But that isn't, you know, I can't speak French if, if, <laughs> if you tell me, just go look it up if on you're Google. you're on Google Translate, yeah. <laughs> I, and it just, I, I find like, you know, one time I was like, you know, I should go see what the cognitive psychologists are teaching about this. And don't get me wrong, there's some really, really sharp cognitive psychologists who are not teaching this kind of thing. But I went into this workshop by this top guy from a top university, and he's going on about, well, you know, of course, you don't really need to memorize anything or really learn anything because you can always look it up. And that was the point where I just thought, you know, I think I'm going to, I will not be rude but the first little break I get, I'm out of here. Because it, it, it was really clear that this guy's a cognitive psychologist because he knows squat about how to learn well in math and science. And he doesn't have anything to tell us about how to learn in math and science. He thinks he knows all this stuff, but he doesn't. And I remember, you know, I, of course, I, I feel like, I don't know if you've watched that old movie, Dr. Strangelove, where you know, he has this weird hand that keeps raising up and trying to strangle him. But sometimes I just couldn't help it. I'm sitting in this class and my hand goes up and I'm like, no, no, don't raise your hand. And then uh, um, I'd say, well, you know, if, if you don't memorize some of the foundational laws that you're working with as an engineer, the, the theorems, how can you really understand them well? And, and then it turns out there's like a bunch of other engineers in the class. And they're like, yeah, you know, because I found that when I memorized some of these equations, I really learned them better. I, and I did a lot better. And, you know, you can see this guy's like, oh, what kind of class have I got here now? I mean, uh, um, but, you know, don't get me wrong. There's fantastic cognitive psychologists. I, a lot of my work is dedicated to wonderful people like Jeff Karpicki um, and uh, Robert Bjork, who've done magnificent work. But there's also so many poorly replicated, just, you know, goofball stuff that it's all also floating around there, and particularly in education, that's kind of just become fads. And everybody says, let's use these because everybody uses them but they're not really effective ways of teaching or helping people learn. I'm really interested in the, um, what, how you described learning was. So would I be right in saying that if I view learning as building a new neural pattern in my brain, does that mean that all learning, whether that's learning to dance, learning a new language, learn a new engineering equation is it all fundamentally done the same way yes and no it is done exactly the same way in the sense of we're creating links in long-term memory and storing them for the most part in the neocortex mm. that's whatever you're learning whether it's math or dance or language or what have you what is increasingly interesting is there's two highways that the brain uses to deposit those sets of links in long-term memory. And depending on which highway you use, your learning can be improved or actually you can find yourself limping. And what do I mean by that? Uh, let's say you're learning a language. 
So what the two pathways are is the first is the declarative learning pathway. And so that's um, through the hippocampus deposits links in long-term memory. So your working memory kind of works with something like you're taking in these ideas now and is trying to deposit sets of links through the hippocampus um, as an index into long-term memory. The other way of learning is through procedural, the procedural system, which goes through the basal ganglia. Mm. And this system is used when you are learning, when you do something over and over and over again. So you learn it by heart really well, or you've done something so many times in so many different ways that you figured out what the patterns are. So this procedural system, is a, it's not a stupid rote system, although, I mean, it can be that, but it's also a very, very clever pattern detector. And indeed, how children learn their native languages is they use their procedural systems and it helps them detect these patterns. So if you're learning a new language as an adult, the... The good thing about adults is they have a very, they have much stronger declarative system than little kids do. That means they can kind of think logically or put things step by step together. I don't suppose that's necessarily a logical thing, but you're step by step uh, learning some activity or sequence. Um, and so let's say I'm learning a new language like, like Spanish. So I'm studying Spanish. I have a list of vocabulary words. I memorize the list of vocabulary words. And what I'm doing is I'm taking that from my working memory through my hippocampus into long-term memory. I might be using tricks, you know, like little mnemonics. Like if I'm trying to remember the word duck is pato. So I think of a duck in a pato of water, you know, to make that little affiliation. But it's all this deposited it through the declarative system. So I've learned a bunch of vocabulary words. I am, I, I'm all set. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to show <laughs> off how much I know. And I get out of the airport and I go to the taxi and I can't even say, I, I can't even say hello. I, it's all gone. And as I start going around, I'm trying to say sentences and I've memorized these sentences. I've learned them through the declarative system, but nothing emerges. And it's because I have not been practicing and in a kind of an interleaved, interwoven way. And by that, I mean, like random sentences, random word structures that you put together in this new language that you had to pull out at any time that's procedural practice. And only when you're there for a while and you start talking to people and you get the practice and so forth, that starts building those procedural sets of links that give you a, an automaticity that make you fast with what you're learning. And uh, so it's the procedural. And so what often can happen with like high school language learning courses is you're mostly learning declaratively. And then you're kind of stuck because you haven't had enough practice to get those procedural sets of links built in. Yes. And a good language learning program, on the other hand, will allow you to, you know, learn declaratively because you can learn faster that way, but also give you plenty of practice. So you get those procedural links and you're much faster. What does it mean to truly learn something i think you could parse that like if you asked a thousand different experts that question they would all answer differently so that means that there there can be no one right answer to that question you know, from my simplified shorthand way of thinking about how we learn, I think a reasonably good answer to that is that you have created sets of links in long-term memory that you can access. Um, you know, because here's what can happen in school. A student looks at a book 
and they see the, the list of vocabulary words and they go, oh yeah, got this. And they don't actually check, they don't test themselves about whether they've put those links in long-term memory. They're only in working memory. As long as you're looking at the page, it's in working memory. You think you got it, you fool yourself and then you're tested and you flunk. So, you know, so actually that leads to a, a good way to see whether you have actually learned something is to see if you can retrieve it from your own mind, you know, check, see if you, you know, look at flashcards, look away from a page and see if you can retrieve the key idea. These are all good ways of just testing yourself. And the more you test yourself, testing has gotten a really bad name and it's very unfair. Um, because, you know, I can very under, well understand how uh, teachers would not want to have you know, a lot of tests foisted on them. But the tests that the teachers give are really valuable, not only for the teachers to know where the students are standing, but also to know where uh, to help students get an awareness. We, we now know that one hour spent testing versus one hour of just studying, you will learn way more with the wow. one hour of testing. That's, that's, that's really interesting to me. So one thing which I, I'm getting from you so far is that the kind of narrative which I've read and that people have said to me before is that memorization, that, well, the narrative that I think that I've heard anyway is that memorization can be a kind of impediment to learning. But kind of what I'm getting from you is that actually there may be some uses to it uh as a base to say keep testing yourself to put it into that declarative memory am i right in saying that there is some use to memorization it's not that there is some use to memorization it's that memorization is a vitally important part of any mm -hmm. good learning program right. um see what happened was in the in the 1950s um bf skinner reigned supreme as a you know he was the 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 psychologist du jour and his approach was that you learn through a stimulus response you know basically you get a little reward for whatever is being presented when you get the right answer and it, so a lot of teaching at that time involved um you know sort of rote drill and that kind of thing mm. and skinner was quite a, an exceptional personality. And part of that was because he was so dogmatic and so willing to block anyone who thought any differently than he did. So this meant that a lot of people who wanted to really try to investigate other ways of learning uh, were blocked. They couldn't publish in top journals, you know, because they were all, all those top journals were controlled by behaviorists. So, um, in the 50s and 60s, Noam Chomsky sort of did a really vitriolic sets of set of attacks on uh, B.F. Skinner and basically helped to open the door so that those who were thinking of cognitive psychology approaches, meaning a lot of declarative type of learning as opposed to procedural, that those declarative uh, or the, the um, well, cognitivists, you might call them, um, you know, that they were right in how they could uh, view how we learn, that we don't just learn by stimulus response. It turns out in the end, uh, both camps were sort of right. You know, we do learn uh, and procedural system learns really, really well through just very simple, you know, you get an input. Was it right? Oh, it was right. Now I get some dopamine jollies. I learned off of that. And, and this is a really important part of learning. In fact, it's all the, the like pattern recognition and routine kind of things that we, you know, we've learned so well that we don't have to think about them like the multiplication tables and when we're doing fractions and things like that, but also the declarative um, sort of pathway is really important as well. But Chomsky's attacks on 
you know, uh, any sort of rote learning, you know, just saying drill and kill is, I mean, in the 1980s, you can see a huge spike in the use of the term drill and kill, which was pretty much non-existent before then. So, you know, the cognitivists were stigmatizing in every way possible behaviorist procedural approaches to learning. And, wow. and that seeped into education and the approach of educators. So that meant that pretty much everything that was wrote was eliminated. But that's like half of how we learn important things, especially stuff we do all the time. So it's like asking a runner to sprint on one leg if you're trying to get people to learn well by only teaching, have them, having them use the declarative system. So new, uh, you know, I think the vision that's ahead of us in education is we will kind of bring back the value of some forms of drill. I say drill to skill because it, it really can enhance our learning. And combined with um, more declarative approaches to learning, the two of them are like a one-two punch that are really powerful. What's fascinating is you can see that in even individual families, if a child was educated in the early 70s, they had on average a higher IQ than those educated in the 80s and 90s. Wow. wow. Why, you know, why there's lots of reasons proposed, but you look at the pattern and it's kind of like all the Western countries that have kind of incorporated this drill is bad. You know, the, the IQs are going down in those countries. Well, it makes sense. I mean, learning, uh, what you learn actually uh, makes a difference in what your IQ is. And if you're only learning with one leg, so to speak, it's just harder to learn. And of course, IQs could, as a consequence, go down. I'm going to clip that and send it to my mother and say, I finally got a reason for why I failed my high school physics test. So, <laughs> so thank you, Bo. <laughs> it's probably the same reason I did. But, yeah. um, I would love to, to ask you, um, one thing that I think about a lot is I think about inversion and I like to kind of use this mental model to kind of break something down. So um, instead of saying something like, how can I be happy? I would use the inversion of it and say, how can I not be happy? And then obviously you think, okay, I would ruin my sleep. I would get in toxic relationships. I would be in debt. I would do all these things. So if I was to flip that and use that in the context of learning, what are some of the biggest mistakes that people are making when they are trying to learn? They, everybody does this. They try to make it easier on themselves. Mm. Uh, um, and Bob Bjork has done some tremendous work in desirable difficulties. Uh, in essence, underpinning the idea that, you know, learning is it's not necessarily easy. And it yes. just breaks my heart sometimes because all of this is well accepted at university levels, but you get it into K-12 and it's just like, oh, we've got to make it all easy. We've got to make it really fun because otherwise they're going to drop out of whatever the program is. And it's like, no, people like something because they're good at it. And if you don't help them get good at it, they will never like it. Even you can have them go play air guitar all you want, but they're never going to learn to love the guitar if you don't like have the hard work of guitar learning. So I, uh, so much of education seems to be more and more wrapping around the idea of this air guitar kind of, we got to make it fun for students. And it's no students value they value expertise and they love the feeling of knowing that they've learned something, especially if it's taken them some difficulty to learn it. I've, I've often um, kind of questioned people um, when I was at university and I would speak to people that are doing subjects and they would say, oh, you know, I really hate this subject and I really 
hate this and, and I, you know, and this, that, and, that. and I would always think to myself, like, do you really hate the subject or do you just not understand it? Have you not put in the hours? Have you not, as you said at the start, developed that passion for it? Do you think that there's, there's something to be said for that perhaps? Oh, for sure. You, you know, I have to preface this by saying that, so we've been discussing the procedural system and how that learns with lots of inputs. Mm. And, and, but what we don't, what we don't think about a lot of time is the procedural system gets this information in, but it also sends information out, but you're not conscious of it. So let's say that you say, I hate math. I really hate math. I'm going to, and what you're not thinking of is your procedural system. Like for me, you know, I, I moved when I was in second grade and suddenly all the other students were way far ahead of me in the multiplication tables. And, and I was just like, you know, kind of lost. And I didn't have teachers who, it, and I don't want to blame this all on the teachers. I mean, sometimes it you know, I could have had better teachers, but sometimes I would, I would be like, okay, dare you see if you can put it in my brain. Cause it's, it's not going to go there. You know? <laughs> uh, and I mean, I, I could be a really obnoxious student, but at the same time, um, sometimes I, I remember asking very perceptive questions and just kind of getting blown off um, by teachers. So all, what all of this did though, and it's similar for other people who hate math. You just get this value function that feeds into your, you know, seemingly objective um, thoughts about something. And it is subconsciously influencing you to say, yeah, I don't care what you say. I hate math. Right. I will always hate math. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's what's, and, and the thing that's hard to realize is you can change that. Mm by, you know, kind of opening your mind. And for me, the thing that really changed, uh, made me change was to be at age 26. I'm getting out of the military and I have absolutely no job offers, no enticing or interesting things to do. I could either stay in the military and, you know, I, and they were good to me. They taught me a language and, uh, and so forth, but I just didn't want to do that. So I thought, you know, all these engineers I work with, um, they seem to have some really good job opportunities. Why don't I see if I can try that? Mm. Uh, um, and it, it's so funny. I could have made that change. I just was never motivated to do that. So sometimes the real world is a great motivator. And so many young people today, uh, I think they they hear pie in the sky from... Um, you know, from individuals who, you know, follow your passion and your, their parents might be saying, don't do that, you know, because parents are thinking about what's going on in the real world. Um, your friends are not thinking about what's going on in the real world. Your friends are just interested in making you happy right now. And it, they know what you want to hear. So they're going to tell you, follow your passion. Who, you know, you, you have a teacher um, in, uh, let's see. Well, I, I shall not naysay any discipline, but let's say you have a teacher who is not in a discipline that is uh, highly paid or that, you know, that, uh, um, that there's a lot of job opportunity in but they love their discipline and they want to reaffirm themselves. They're going to tell you, oh, there's plenty of job opportunities in this discipline. They may not tell you that they're really low paying. Um, mm -hmm. They're going to want you to come on board. So you'll hear all these blandishments to not look at what the real world is going to tell, going to eventually tell you. And then when it tells you something, it, you know, it's kind of like, yeah. it would have been better to have learned that earlier, but sometimes students are just protected uh, from discovering this until it, it, it's a much longer road to try to repair. Sure. Sure. And I, I think that uh, well, the, the way I always kind of view learning is that I've always kind of viewed it as like a workout. 
Like I, I've always had the idea that it's kind of supposed to be difficult. And I remember when I was at university and I had this, uh, this one professor, they had a meeting with him. It was towards the end of, I think, my third year. And uh, he said to me, he said, you know, how many hours do you study in a day? And uh, I would say, you know, maybe two hours a day. And, um, and, and the guy looked flabbergasted. He said to me, two hours a day? He said, I've got students studying eight to ten hours a day that are failing. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, you know, studying eight to ten hours a day. I was like, you know, I, I don't know, kind of make like a value judgment. But to me, that sounds like that's a kind of attention problem. That's a kind of effort problem. Like just going back to what to to what you said, Blair, you know, for me, I think that I've always been kind of like an A, B student, nothing spectacular, served me well. And I've always kind of viewed learning, and I'd be interested to know if, if you think this is a viable approach as kind of something which should be intense and that it should be difficult, that we should assert ourselves through, that we know that that beginning phase of learning is going to be difficult. But once we're past that initial discomfort, then there's kind of gold on the other side. Oh, you know, but that that isn't really true. I mean, it's true sometimes, but it really depends a lot. Like if I had to spend my entire life only like deliberate practice, I'm going to gut this out. I'm not going to enjoy <laughs> a bit of it. I, I probably wouldn't want to learn anything. Mm. You know, it's, but it's kind of, I mean, there's two sorts of things. Like, I mean, there really is fun learning. I, I sit, you know, I'm reading this book about a tiger now. And I mean, it's just, a, it's, it's a true story, but it's just totally riveting. I'm sure, learning sure. so much about tigers, about how, um, you know, I had no idea that they're capable of abstract thinking, which we think is only a human kind of thing. But it's uh, just a mar. So I learn a lot from books I read and I read uh, for fun. I watch uh, massive open online courses for fun. I I don't, I don't like, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't read vector calculus books for fun. Um, you know, I I'm will surprised. read, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do read math books there, they, but they take longer for me and they're slower. And um, it's easiest for me to like read something that has stories in it. And, and I learn a lot. So I, I try to just balance my learning. I do some hard learning, um, and mm. but I, I also do a lot of easy and fun learning. And I think that helps keep me excited about life. Sure, sure. I, I think that the, the kind of learning that I was referring to was the kind of difficult, maybe necessary, but not... Uh, the kind of stuff which you would do on a Sunday should you not have the choice to do. Um, so one thing I was actually going to ask you about this is I had a conversation with the neuroscientist, Andrew Huberman. Oh, um, I love his work. Yes, he is. He is great. He's a delight, uh, Andrew is. And one thing that I remember him saying to me, but I, I didn't get him to elaborate on, was that basically he said to me that when we are sitting down to, say, do some difficult work, that at the start we have this kind of agitation. We're sitting there and our mind is kind of flickering. I've got an empty word document in front of me and I've got a 1500 word essay to write and my mind is kind of, but maybe 30 or 40 minutes in, I could be right into the flow of an essay and get disgruntled if someone interrupts me. Why is that starting period so painful? Well, if you think about it, let's say you have a stomach ache. Well, a stomach ache hurts. Right. When you think about something where you anticipate that you you just don't like it, you know, it's something like, let's say, grading papers as a teacher or doing your taxes or, <laughs> um, you know, or learning something for um, at the university. When you even just think about something you don't like or don't want to do, it activates a portion of the brain that experiences pain. That's that uh, same portion of the brain that is gives that helps you feel that stomach ache. You think it's in your stomach, but it's actually in your brain. Yeah. 
So what does the brain do? It, it, it's the brain is super smart. Remember that stimulus reinforcement. So you just got a stimulus that's negative. Now, what do you do? Oh, let's think about something else. Hey, guess what? The pain is gone instantly. And well, you've also just procrastinated, but hey, you know, that's, and you, that's how procrastination happens. It like slithers away so quick because you just have that instant dollop of pleasure. Okay. Oh no, taxes. Oh yeah. Video game. Um, And gives you that dollop of pleasure and you're doing it and you get these reinforcements. So it's, you can train yourself to procrastinate. I mean, that's kind of what you naturally do, but you can untrain yourself as far as procrastination. And the best way to do that really is with the Pomodoro technique by, uh, which was developed by Francesco Cedillo in the 1980s. But with this technique, you, it's so simple. You just get rid of all distractions. So no pop-ups on the cell phone or your computer, or whatever. Um, put on earphones, try to get in a non-distracting environment as much as you can. Set a timer for 25 minutes. Work as intently focused as you can, realizing your mind will wander off and just whenever you it does, you catch it and bring it back. And so that's 25 minutes. And at the end of that 25 minutes, give yourself a little reward for five minutes or so. What you're actually doing, so remember that stimulus response? Well, if you have a little reward at the end of that attentional period, you start retraining your brain that, hey, you know, focusing is not that bad. And if you do this Pomodoro technique, what's really clever about it is it's a time-based technique. So you don't sit there and think, okay, now it's time to do my homework. I'm going to do a Pomodoro on the homework. No, you just say, because when you think about homework, activates pain centers of the brain. So you just think, I'm going to do my Pomodoro now. Don't, you know, don't even get those pain centers activated. And you just start working. When it's done, you get a reward. You keep doing that. And it trains your brain to, to be able to focus better. So it's a super marvelous technique. I really like that. And, and it actually takes me back to what you were talking about earlier, where we kind of talked about these learned helplessness loops that people could get themselves in where they struggle to do something so as you said you give the example with math so you kind of you think oh you know what's the point of this so you try less but it sounds like that's actually creating like a learned hopefulness loop in your brain yes i think it does and and what we really do know is that if you learn once you start learning something about a topic the next, you, you kind of get over this little bump and then, and then learning starts getting easier. And, and if you think about it, I mean, like riding a bicycle is learning to ride a bicycle is super painful. I mean, you fall off, mm, you, right. you can break your leg, you can get your head conked and all sorts of things. But we do it because we can see that we can fly at the other side. Um, mental kinds of learning it's harder to see how you can fly on the other side you just kind of got to get to the other side and then you can begin flying so um, the best way to make learning easier more enjoyable and more fun for students is to start gaining mastery you know get through those rough periods and then you start gaining mastery in it and it's like the bicycle it's like, hey this is kind of fun right i would i would love to ask um so obviously so today we've talked about neural networks we've talked about the neocortex what would be some ways that we can um improve our neural networks to increase learning like i've always maintained a good exercise routine i think i was blessed with an ability to sleep like a baby you know not many people oh, have i that. want that i know i can sleep any place anytime i can shut my eyes and i can fall asleep what, <laughs> what would be some some other ways we can do that 
Oh, you know, you, you stole my thunder already with oh, exercise because so that's sorry, the first, that is like the first thing. Um, because when we're, you always just think of, you know, learning as something completely different than what's going on, like when you're exercising. Mm. But it turns out that exercises produce brain-derived neurotropic factor amongst other factors in the brain and does other things as well. But this factor serves as a sort of fertilizer. So when you're making those neural connections, you're trying to do it. Hey, guess what? You can make those connections easier. And it also puts into place other um, dendritic spines that you can connect into. So it creates the opportunity for new connections. It even uh, seems to be affiliated, for example, with um, uh, neurogenesis, creating mm. new neurons. And if you really want to learn something new or gain a fresh perspective, guess what? Having new neurons is super helpful. <laughs> uh, it's, in fact, for treating depression, they found one of the hottest new areas is neurogenesis mm. because you get into this depressed mode of thinking and you kind of want to get out of it having fresh neurons um, that kind of give you the opportunity for new pathways of learning are, are a great way to do that. Everybody, I, 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 you're going to have to forgive me for asking this question. This is going to be a, a hacker's delight question, but I would like, just have to throw it in you. Um, I think everybody wants a kind of magic pill for learning. Um, are there any supplements uh, i'm not sure I, I think i've heard adderall talked about a lot uh, creatine fish oil is there anything out there with any substance to it um now you're seeing my husband uh oh, yeah. putting something in the dishwasher sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> he's looking for the scissors so we have our, our <laughs> hello <laughs> Immortalized on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> so these are good questions. So, um, you know, everybody wonders about uh, Adderall, Modifinol, and so forth. What these can do is help you want to learn more or to focus. Um, they don't necessarily help you learn better, if you know what I mean. I mean, they, they don't help you create those new connections necessarily right. at all. So, um, you know, and they're addictive and it's a kind of a, you know, I mean, do you really want to go there? Because everybody always thinks I'm not going to get addicted, but, um, you know, but it can, uh, you know, it can really affect you. So, but there are things you can take that do seem to have an effect. So, uh, for example, there uh, there is there are several good studies that cocoa um, that well processed chocolate, um, and I use a, a product called Cocovia um, that is um, it's put out by the Mars company, which is not the Mars chocolate you know company that you normally think of. But if you just look up Cocovia. Uh, there's some good evidence that it not only enhances cardiac function, but it also enhances cognitive function. So, so that's a good one. Um, there are, uh, there are some uh, video games that are um, in progress to through the federal, uh, the FDA in order to uh, help people improve older individuals improve their cognition well, and in fact, some action style video games um, can bring your ability to sort of focus and maintain your attention. You know, mm -hmm. it's not going to increase your working memory capacity, but it, it helps with your attentional abilities. And it can bring that back to the level you had in your 20s or even better. Wow. And why is that? It's partly because, um, I mean, you know, Think about it. If you were suddenly released into the wild and you had to fend for yourself, you would start really being, you know, sharper. I mean, probably sure. if people picked you up and you were able to at least, you know, get enough to, to eat and so forth, you'd probably be in pretty good shape, you know, and even cognitively in good shape. And part of that is, you know, well, you better watch out because what could be behind that rock 
you know, is it a tiger? I mean, it depends on where you get popped. But um, in a video game, it's a very real simulation of, you know, if I'm not careful, that guy can come out from behind that wall and he's got me. And it keeps you cognitively focused and it actually builds your cognitive abilities. And they're working on video games to, to emulate these action style video games. But it's, it's never quite as fun when you just get a bunch of university professors trying to put together these things. So, uh, but if you just use regular old action style video games, that can also improve your cognition. Um, green tea um, seems to be um, somewhat helpful um, in the long run. Of course, tea and coffee uh, and caffeine in general are, they're, they're helpful for, um, for uh, you know building your attention at least when you have them in the morning but is the trade-off worth it in the afternoon to me yes absolutely <laughs> you know i love my coffee in the morning so those are a few of the things there are electrical stimulation devices you know of various sorts uh direct current um you know magnetic and so forth but even neuroscientists themselves don't use these things so i mean do-it-yourselfers get them. And then when they get them, they don't use them after a couple of weeks. So that tells you a lot that this kind of um, modality of trying to enhance your uh, learning isn't that effective. There is, um, what is it called? Uh, binaural music or binaural. Uh, and I was going to ask about this. Yeah. yeah classical music. You know, I don't, you know, if you like classical music, it might help you a little bit. Music is a funny thing. So binaural beats, that's a way of, you know, you're like have slightly out of phase um, going into each ear, which combine to have a single frequency that may help um, kind of enhance your ability to focus and concentrate. But this kind of sound can be sort of, grading and so people hide it with music but then the music can interrupt your ability to focus depending on what you're doing so you know to my mind the evidence so far of binaural beats being helpful it's pretty weak some people swear by it but you know as far as really good controlled studies that show it's you know I don't know. It, it doesn't seem to me to be a very strong effect. If there is, you know, and there may be an effect, but not very strong. Um, if you this, if you have a, a high working memory capacity, like let's say that you're one of those ones who can listen to your instructor and be taking notes, and you follow everything that's going on, which is not me. Um, those are people with high capacity working memory, and they can often listen to music while they're studying and it's okay if you don't have a a high capacity working memory you can be super successful in the long run um but you have to uh, adjust your study techniques and for me and for many people with lesser capacity working memory I, i don't listen to music um there is a little evidence that people with adhd may have may you know a benefit from some forms of music that can help them um, synchronize um, in some sense, uh, but still the results in that area are rather tenuous at present. Is it true, um, because we often hear this idea about various learning styles, auditory, visual, kinesthetic, these various types of learning styles, is there any truth to that? Research has shown that if you test a person who says they're an auditory learner um, and see how well they do in their auditory learning as opposed to their visual learning, like reading a paper as opposed to having a paper read to them, um, you know, they, they've done studies and people who think they're more auditory or people who don't, who think they're more visual, they really don't. Um, they don't do better one way or another. Right. So 
you know, so the conclusion that has been drawn from this is that learning styles um, are invalid, uh, an invalid approach. Now, this has become such an entrenched and understandably entrenched perspective from top um, psychologists that it's almost difficult to point out the idea that um, there is profound research evidence that people can learn, that people can prefer to learn via declarative pathways versus procedural pathways. Right. So, um, so if you're thinking of learning styles in that modality, well, maybe, you know, maybe Maybe that's what some teachers are thinking of. And of course, you know, the learning styles uh, antagonists will say, no, that's not what they're thinking of. They're thinking of VARC, which is, you know, visual audio and so forth. And, and they're right. But uh, I do think that we should keep our minds open to the fact that, um, for example, people who learn procedurally with preference are often, you know, that's often a physical skill you know, it's related to physical skills. And so there are some people who do seem to prefer to learn with their hands. You know, they don't want to read the instructions. They just want to get their hands on stuff. Um, no one's really studied this, but, uh, you know, is it possible that some people are, um, you know, I, I'd love to know, you know, what's going on because it seems that those with dyslexia have a preference for learning declaratively. It seems that perhaps those with um, on the autism spectrum disorder have a propensity for learning more procedurally. So, you know, so it's hard to say, you know, because you don't want to say, um, I mean, the politically correct thing to say nowadays is that learning styles are that whole idea is bunkum and, you know, you should throw it all out. Uh, uh, but personally, I think that there's, um, there's nuance there and, uh, and that new research will be looking more carefully at these kinds of ideas. Really interesting. I, I think as well with the learning styles, I think that um, it can also kind of become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like one of the things which, which I always, which I, I, go by anyways that I go by I'm quite a, a good listener and for some reason I've reinforced that over in my mind so that's one thing where it's quite difficult to distinguish um, but I'd love to ask you a couple more questions uh, just to kind of wrap this up because this has been fantastic um, we always just sign out our podcast off with a couple of quick fire ones uh, so outside of your work and your books um, what books have you read which have impacted your life Barbara? Oh, well, I think um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, mm. you know, way back yes. in the day, um, you know, and there's lots of naysayers uh, that have come out of the woodwork since that time, but I just thought it was a magnificent way of trying to look at the world um, and, and how human civilization has unfolded in a new way. So I, that book has had, um, I think it's a tremendous book. So it's, um, I, I think that's probably one of the ones um, that has had a big impact on me. Also, I, I just, I love reading history. So Jack Weatherford's um, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. Uh, that Genghis Khan, you know, he was like, he was a really bad guy if you got on his bad side. But uh, for all intents and purposes, if you were on his good side, which many groups were, he was a benevolent, very good leader. And it's just like, well, who knew? Uh, um, and I'm a big fan of uh, Peter the Great by Robert Massey. And, um, you know, I, I, I try to read uh, a lot. And so uh, it's like every week, I feel like whatever my latest book is, uh, oh, a, a a very, very good book uh, is called War and Peace and War by Peter Turchin. And uh, now Peter is Russian. And so like he goes on and on about the Cossacks, which 
personally, I find them pretty interesting. But I, I was I was like so excited for him to finally get to the Roman Empire. But he's talking about um, Ibn Khaldun's idea of Asibaya, which is that when a culture meets another culture that is very foreign, they there's a clash at the frontier of culture, cultures, and this clash can cause the, the groups that are of similar cultures to unite. And, uh, and so that's what we saw. I mean, a perfect example of that was the Roman Empire. And they, they you know, were clashing against the Germanic tribes of the North, and that's what caused it to begin coalescing. But uh, he just, it, it's a book about the rise and fall of uh, uh, civilizations and how that occurs because you have external forces that causes a, a, a country, a group to fear you know, for their, that, that they'll be able to continue at all. And that's a very big motivator. People will just, they, you know, they, they don't want to work together a lot of the time. Everybody wants it to be, you know, there's a lot of people who want to be king of the walk. And so everybody wants to be, you know, I, it's not everybody, but, you know, uh, and so trying to get all these would-be kings to actually work together is a very difficult thing. And only when they think they're all maybe going to die does uh, do they start to unite. But then once they've united, they can create a really, you know, highly functional and very effective empire. But when that empire goes on for long enough, it starts decaying from the heart, from within. Right because everybody takes for granted what they've already gotten. And uh, so it's, it's a really, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Some great recommendations there. Um, which area of uh, science of, it could be any, any area, it could be medical, it could be psychology, it could be neuroscience, it could be any field. Are you most looking forward to uh, seeing upcoming research for? Oh, neuroscience, of course. Um, and the reason for that, my hope is that it doesn't get hijacked by special interests, that they, they have the, the potential, which is not to say it would be realized, but at least the potential of understanding um, in a scientific way how we think and, and to improve you know, our abilities to learn and to, to work together. Um, but we must take great care because it's so easy to get hijacked um, by someone's pet idea that sounds really good and has nothing to do with truth. Nice. Um, and so that's why education, I think, has often gone off track in the, uh, in, over the years is because it's so disconnected from neuroscience and from how we actually learn that it's really easy to, you know, just get some fad and, you know, you know and everybody gets on board the fad wagon and, um, and then the students are the losers. So I, I just think there's a lot of potential in and hope for all of us in neuroscience. I love that. My last question for you today, before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys about your upcoming work, is what makes a life worth living? My family. You know, the ones I love. They, they are the ones who... So it's different for everyone. Um, I... My family helps serve as everything, the foundation for everything I do. But what I want to do is to truly help others not feel like I'm helping others. And that's really, really hard to do, you know, because you have to be honest with yourself about what you're doing um, and to be willing to switch course when you're off base. Mm -hmm. um, so my family is my foundation. Um, trying to make a non-pathological, uh, <laughs> pathologically altruistic 
improvement and difference in people's lives is is kind of my day to day. That's what keeps me um, happy. And I'd just like to pay my gratitude to you because I really think that you've done that. You've brought so much value today. Your work has been helping students, helping people learn languages, learn new skills. So I think I'm fair to say you really are making people's lives better. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. And it's a pleasure being on the show. So, uh, you know, um, and so if you want to find out more about my, my work, so I have two, <laughs> two new books and two <laughs> new uh, massive open online courses coming out in June. And uh, so the first one is Learn Like a Pro. And that is a condensed, um, it's, it's like everything you want to know about how to learn effectively, um, including ideas like how do you gain intuition when you're learning how to code? How do you, uh, how do you learn a language more effectively? Um, and that's, so that's coming out from St. Martin's Press and in many languages around the world, Learn Like a Pro. It will be a short, massive open online course on edX. And so that will be coming out June 1st as well. It is incredibly funny. So, um, it, it, but it has, it, it has learning in a way you've never seen it before and all condensed into one. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's pretty wonderful. We are very happy. I mean, even the president of edX is like, he's going to write an article about uh, uh, our work. And so congratulations. So, yeah. I mean, I, I really like Anant Agarwal, but then my other uh, book and MOOC is Uncommon Sense Teaching will be coming out from Penguin Random House um, on June 15th. It has a enormous heap of accolades from top neuroscientists, top cognitive psychologists, top educators. Um, and, uh, it, and it looks at teaching in a way that has never been, you know, people will be like, here's neuro teach, here's a, you know, how to teach well based on neuroscience. And it's like, this is your amygdala. Don't get the amygdala scared. <laughs> please you know i mean there's just like like all the things we've been talking about way way more and uh and then that will also be a massive open online course on uh on coursera that will be coming out june 15th as well and so we're very excited uh and that is also super funny so uh so if you're looking for either learning for yourself or you're looking to teach better uh, there's something for all of you. Do you want any social media at all? You, you know, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Right. And uh, I do Instagram, but not a whole bunch. Um, because, But I do like Instagram because I'm like a picture kind of person. Uh, but dare not call me visual learner. So uh, actually I learn in all ways as do almost all of us. So, <laughs> uh, um, so I, yeah. Uh, um, oh, if, but if you sign up for my course, Learning How to Learn, um, which I did with Terence Sanowski, the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute, and that's on Coursera. And it is one of the world's most popular courses ever um, on, you know, on a MOOC platform. We've had over 3 million uh, learners. Wow. And wow. if you sign up, if you just sign up for the course, which is free, then you can actually get my weekly email that I send out every Friday, which reminds me I'm going to have to <laughs> get <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, get it all finalized and everything. So I will uh, check a link in for our listeners. Barbara, this has been an absolute pleasure for me it's has been a, a wonderful way to spend my evening thank you so much for coming on the show oh it's my pleasure thank you <laughs>